Hey, this is Brian. Welcome to Heart to Heart, episode number 114, Breaking Barriers and Honoring Authenticity with Casting Director Carrie Barton. Here's what we want you to listen for. Carrie tells us how his love for acting turned into a 30-year career as a casting director and producer. Carrie's unique perspective as a trained actor turned casting director has given him an invaluable understanding of what it truly means to embody authenticity on screen. And with the industry constantly evolving, Carrie will shed light on the exciting future of casting. The rise of self-tapes has transformed the audition process and sparked new discussions. Listen in as Carrie shares his thoughts on the impact of self-tapes and what they mean for actors like you. Before we dive into the conversation, we've got to grab our backstage pass because it is packed with Carrie's top tips, insider advice, and additional resources that will give you a competitive edge. You can grab the backstage pass by going to podcastbackstagepass.com. Monsters Ball, when I was driving here, you know, I was thinking of Monsters Ball for for many reasons, I'll tell you why. But one of the, you know, obviously it's a film that stuck out to me because of the some suicide that goes on there. And Robin Williams has a great quote. I don't know if you ever heard this quote. I had to write it down. People don't pretend to be depressed. They pretend to be fine. And it's so true. You know, like, uh, you know, being, you know, working on a film like that. I mean, uh, as a cat. Yeah. But you've had many other intense films like Boys Don't Cry. Was that also, I mean, so is that a coincidence that a lot of your body of work has been intense films? Well, it, you know, and then there's also Pineapple Express and, yeah. you know, these perfect movies. And yeah, so yeah. yeah, a lot of that has been intense stuff because I think that's what a lot of actors lean into is, you know, stuff that they want to like really dig deep into, you know, their like layers of emotions that they want to show and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a, I mean, the intensity is something that appeals to actors and directors. And, you know, the part of storytelling that I think is appealing to other people because then they get that frisson, that emotional connection to a story that they're watching where they don't have to actually live it and go that deep, but they understand it. And, and it's part of the human condition that I think is what excites people about storytelling, you know. And seeing aspects of life that, you know, affect all of us, I think. Well, it's funny that you say that because just before you came, you were scheduling a, a class with uh, Chaz Palminteri. We got into a conversation. And he's, yeah. And he said, Mark, the biggest mistake a lot of actors can make when they're playing funny is they, they play the funny. You can't play the funny. So it's kind of like the counteract to what you're saying, you know, as far as when it comes to comedy, yeah. you play the conviction of the seriousness. Well, the comedy comes from, you know, reality based because I think, you know, especially humor is used to deflect, you know, a lot of things that are painful sometimes. So they people use it to, you know, get past, you know, something that's problematic for them. And, you know, and, and certainly you mentioned Robin Williams. He was one of the best at comedy out there. And his comedy yeah. was outlandish but also based in reality and human emotions you know that was really kind of reached people really wonderful man wonderful actor and, and one of the funniest people i've ever known so i, I don't know if, if you know this but that monstrous ball there was an actor when we first opened one-on-one like the first two months he was someone who was trying to you know he was, he was a little frustrated with uh, his acting career mm-hmm. and he asked me if i would go for a beer with him and I, I went for a beer with him and he, he was telling me how he needed to, he wanted to stay in the business, but he, he was a little frustrated with the acting part. Mm-hmm. So he was just starting 
to write at nighttime. I don't know if you know this story, but his name was Will, Will Rokos. Yeah. He was writing Monsters Ball. Yeah. I didn't know at that time what it was called. It's funny, the six degrees. I don't know if that was the original title or not. And I'd gotten a script from Will that was based on a book that I had actually read. I think they ended up shooting it with Scarlett Johansson. And it was a, this alien kind of film. But uh, he's a wonderful writer and um, good actor as well. I think acting is a one way to express yourself and writing is another, obviously, directing. All the arts are, are about expressing yourself. And I think that is part of human nature. We all want to have a voice. And I think if you're drawn to the arts, you have that real burning desire to you know, move forward with reaching out about human nature and you know the human condition, which is as ancient as the Greeks and probably before that as well with the cave dwellers, you know. <laughs> so storytelling's been around since the beginning. That's right. Yeah. But the intangible is, Will, one of the reasons I went out with him for the beer, he's such a gentleman. And Carrie, I got to tell you, you know, like out of all 30 years now, the world, 31st year, I would say, you know, there's, there's a word, a Yiddish word. I don't know if you ever heard of the word mensch. And to me, when I was driving here to see you today, I was like, Kerry Barton, I got to share with him, gentleman of all gentlemen. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you. I will take that as a very honored compliment. So it's always been a special thing when you would come in, whenever I would see you, you, you know, the, the great thing for the actors that you imparted was that energy of like, hey, you know what? I'm a human being. You're a human being. Let me share with you so that you get it. Well, I mean, the thing I like about what I do is it's a great collaboration with the actors, with the directors, with the producers, with the agents and managers. And so it's a great way to engage with all different kinds of people in the careers that we've all cho chosen in this field of arts. And I feel like a lot of people in our world kind of think there are, you know, barriers and dividing lines and stuff like that. And so it's um, at a disadvantage in a way because they're up against something that's actually not there. Yes. And so it's kind of, you have to lower people's barriers to, you know, get them to come forward with the best work that they can do. And Carrie, like, I know you, we never talked about stuff like this, but like, for instance, I believe that in anything in life, no matter what comes at you, you can take it many different ways. So I'm listening to a podcast on the way because I'm trying to prepare for this. Uh, so I listen okay. to good. So Chris, I don't know if you ever listened to Christine Amapour. So she was. They were. They were talking to her, and they were like, "So at the beginning of your career, you're a woman, mm -hmm. and you're trying to be a porter. And wasn't that tough being a woman?" She goes, "Actually, it was a blessing." And so she starts to tell reasons why, as a woman, mm -hmm. you know, she really stuck out, which was a good thing, yeah. and as she could get through doors that you know because a lot of mostly men doing it. So she told something that I wasn't used to hearing, you know, like a, a, from a woman's point of view. And I said to myself, isn't that interesting? Here's this woman saying, and all the curveballs that were that she faced along with like uh, doing reporting from Bosnia to where she is today, she always looks at the opportunity in things. So the reason I'm getting this long speech yeah. is you've always shown in the classroom how, you know, and, and we've always believed in this, like, listen, whether you're a woodworker, plumber, you got to get your education. So besides that, when, when it comes to being an actor, we've always felt there is a place, no matter what your education, where you can apply what you've learned by, for a very finite period of time, getting assigned material that someone has worked on in the past as far as a casting director, and preparing for them 
so that you can actually hear their feedback and hopefully their help with understanding that nuance that needs to come across the camera when going into an audition. Well, I think to speak to what you're, some of the things that you touched on, a lot of actors say, well, what are you looking for? And it's like, what your experience as this character, as this person relates to your life, to the material itself, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for a replication of someone else's performance because we do scenes that, you know, some people can go and look up and, you know, I don't want them to do a perfect replication of someone else's work. It's not what we are looking for in the initial auditions because it's created from that audition process. And so I feel like if you're connecting to a character and you're getting deep inside yourself to tell whatever experience they're having, whether it's joyful or sad, is something that you have to tap into as an actor that would be the way you lived through that moment in your life. And so there's no way to tell somebody, what are we looking for? You know, we're looking for what your ideas are as an actor. And I feel like that's part of, you know, we hear from Oscar Wilde and, you know, different quotes from famous people is you can only be yourself and you can only bring to your life and, you know, especially your art, your experience of what it is to be a human being. You're not going to be, I was uh, on this panel about, you know, only casting people that are authentically what the characters are. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I did a movie called American Psycho and Christian Bale is certainly not a serial killer. So you can't. Just cast specifically to what someone's actual personal life is because, you know, the experience that we're telling is not necessarily documentary. So it's interesting to me to see what's going on in the world today, you know, about this kind of, you know, narrowing down the field of what actors are supposed to cast in which roles and so forth and so on. And, you know, telling stories that feel authentic is very important. But with Winter's Bone, these people didn't live in the Appalachian Mountains. You know, they weren't, you know, know, they weren't disenfranchised human beings. They were actors who lived in New York and L.A. and have very nice lives. But they were able to, you know, understand what it must be like to be in that world where, you know, the opportunities are, are much different than they are in a an urban society. Well, you mentioned Winter's Bone. When that were there, there's some scenes where they actually captured the singing of the Appalachian uh, sound of like these people were like singing some kind of Appalachian song that were the real town. Yeah, that group of musicians in the film were from that uh, area. And um, Deborah Granick is very, the director was very meticulous about, you know, making sure that it felt like the world that these people lived in and it honored that world as opposed to looking at it like, oh, aren't we lucky we're not in this world? She was not trying to do that kind of like film where it was looking down on this group of people that were living in this community. It was lifting this community up as this is part of American society. And these people, you know, are filled with music and joy and, and community and so forth. So, so, because there are, a friend of mine calls it um, poverty porn, <laughs> where, you know, people do have an opinion of these people that are not the world that we live in in Los Angeles and New York. And so it, it doesn't uplift and honor the different choices in life or not choices in life that you might be stuck with. But so I think Deborah really was, she told a story that was beautiful, you know, and it was about people connecting and, and it's not a world that I live in, but I, it's a world that I was so 
part of creating with Paul and Deborah and the cast members and her producing partner. And I was thrilled to be a part of that because it is a, a glimpse into this life that these people have that's, you know, they like, you know, and it's challenging and hard and harder, much harder than the life we live in, you know, our worlds. But it wasn't depressing. There were some depressing storylines, obviously, in that. And it was touching on, you know, the pandemic of drug abuse and use in the United States, which is across the country and from every economic level in our country. So... And I still remember the little girl at the time who, was that Jennifer Lawrence's first big break or no? She had done a four episode arc on a television series. This was her first um, big role. And, you know, obviously she was up for the challenge. And that's what films do. They really connect us. And, you know, so we're seeing a slice of life that we can all relate to, even though we're not part of that world. Did that happen for you? Was it like, in other words, when did it? When did it occur to you? I guess that's right. You wanted to be an actor. Is that right? I was an actor for a while, yeah. yeah. I majored in theater and uh, came to L.A. and acted and uh, worked in the restaurant business and was offered an internship at casting office for six weeks. And the first day I was there, I fell in love with casting. Wow. You know, because it was, you know, everything you learn as an actor is about scripts, character work, and that's what it takes to be good at at putting a cast together as well. So you have to understand character work and script and uh, character development and breaking down scenes and finding, you know, the beats and scenes, which is what a, an actor has to do as well. So everybody in my office has always had some sort of acting background. And how old were you when you got your casting internship? Five years old. <laughs> I've been doing it for 30 years, so you can tell it. Yeah. Paul is one member early on. Yeah. Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where one-on-one next level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononenextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. I was going to go back to the restaurant business. So you're on the side, you're working in the restaurant business while you're pursuing the acting career, right? Because I did that too. And I always tell people, you want to learn business and without having to go to business school, you know, work in the restaurant business, even for a short time, and you see so much about people mm-hmm. and you see so much about business. Would you say that's true? I think everyone in the United States should be in some part. They should have to go into the service industry for a minute just to learn how to treat people with kindness. You know, it's just an eye opener. You know, yeah. you learn about human nature. You learn about being a person. But I do feel like, you know, if, um, and it's a great industry, the service industry is a great industry. You can have a great career in it. My son is a chef. Some Whoa. of my best friends are, you know, in the hotel business, remain fr- a lot of friends, a lot of, remain friends with a lot of people I worked with back in the day when I was working in restaurants that stayed with that industry. 
But I feel like if you want to be in the film industry, and I wish I had known this when I first started, although I feel like I've learned something, is, uh, you know, getting a job as a PA is probably a better idea than getting a job in the restaurant industry because you do learn about filmmaking and, you know, the industry that we're in. And so it, it kind of demystifies what sets are. And for me, you know, obviously I, I transitioned from acting to casting and, and I love it. And I didn't. Yeah, I mean, there's CSA started a um, program to educate people on how to do casting, which has, was never part of theater or filmmaking departments and universities. You know, casting was not something that anybody ever focused on, which I, it is changing now. And the program that the CSA has put together has um, been very, they've been working on it for a while, you know, to make sure that they can get it right. And they've been doing outreach to a lot of different universities, you know, theater and and film departments across the country. So, Mm. because it is a viable career and it's a very satisfying career. Would you say your like few years in casting were like, was it difficult to break in or? You know what? I'm so lucky, Brian, because I did this internship at uh, Roger Corman's company and I had met Billy Hopkins years before that, who was my first business partner. I had auditioned for him. I had met him through an actress friend of ours, and uh, I auditioned for him for a play that he was directing at um, EST back in New York. And he was casting, I think it was Uncle Buck. And my son was the right, same age as Macaulay. And so my son went into audition. My son did not end up wanting to be an actor. Um, or did he get cast in Uncle Buck? But Billy and I became really good friends. And then when he was out here, he, Risa Brayman used to be his partner. And when he came out, they, and she moved to LA. And so they had separated their companies at the time. And then he got a job at Paramount on a film called Jennifer Eight. And he had knew me and he knew that I had done this internship and asked me if I wanted to come and work as his assistant. And that turned into 30 something years later, I'm still doing this. Wow. And it was great. It was great. So it was like a nice, for me, a nice, it landed in my lap and it landed in my lap at the right time in my life. And it was something that the first day, as I said, on this internship, I realized this is what I was supposed to be doing. But, you know, there was no, you should be a casting director. Right, right, right. And it's been great, you know, and then partnering with Billy and Suzanne was fantastic. Um, I was working freelance at first and just continue to get work. I mean, I worked with Heidi Levitt on several different projects, you know. Then when I moved to New York, uh, Billy and Suzanne and I formed our own company together and uh, stayed together for a little over 15 years, I think. And then Paul and I have been Moved to New York from? From here, from oh, Los yeah. Angeles. Was that quite a switch for you? It was. I had originally from university had planned to move to New York and do theater and mm-hmm. didn't, you know. And moved to LA instead, and of course the theater scene is not as healthy in Los Angeles as it was in New York, is in New York, and so it was a different. It was kind of a sidetrack for me to go into television and film as an actor and not be trained in any of those kind of aspects of acting because it's a different approach. You know, it's a different medium. So when I moved to New York, it was like, yeah, this is where I had initially thought I was going to live out my life. And it's great. I love New York. I still love New York. And we didn't do, Billy and Risa had been the casting directors at Lincoln Center. And 
when I started with Billy and Suzanne, we weren't doing theater anymore. We did a couple of plays. We did um, we did Streetcar. Gregory Moser was directing with Alan Baldwin and Jessica Lange. We did uh, two Shakespearean actors. We did um, James Joyce's The Dead with Chris Walken. So we did some theater, but not a lot because Billy had done that at Lincoln Center and Suzanne had been with recent Billy at that time as well. Was Daniel Sweet there too at the same time or no? No. No, no Daniel took oh, over after, okay, um, gotcha. after Billy and Lisa left. What made you want to move there for casting? Was it just the um, opportunity? My ex-wife moved back to Atlanta and oh. uh, my son was with her and then so it was closer. Uh, so that was the impetus for moving to that was the impetus for moving to New York and was a great move. I was going to say it's almost like a serendipitous, you know. That, so you moved yeah. to New York for that reason, yet at the same time you were in New York at a time where there was so much growth for your company, and now boom. Well, the thing that happened was New York was in the early '90s was the center for independent filmmaking, and so basically, if you could get a film made for two million dollars, you had an automatic sale to block. Buster. So there was a you know great amount of independent films being made, and so we worked with um, John Hart and Jeff Sharp and Robin O'Hara and Scott McCauley and Ted Hope and uh, Christine Vashon and you know all the people that were making independent films, Dolly Hall, all the people that were making independent films, and um, built up great relationship. Had films at Sundance, you know, every year, including. Last year, you know, I mean, Paul and I are still doing a lot of films that make it to Sundance. So, so it's been great, and, and that's where also I developed a, relationships with a lot of the directors I'm still working with, like Mary Harron and um, Tom McCarthy, and you know that group of, of directors that started out in the independent film world as well. And he's also an actor, Tom McCarthy, Tom right? McCarthy. Yeah, that's incredible. He's a wonderful actor. Oh yeah, yeah. we work with a lot of actors. We've worked with um, Tom. Obviously, and um, we did his station agent. We're still working with Tom on Alaska Daily, mm-hmm. you know, the TV show that Hillary Swank's in. And uh, Mary Stuart Masterson, we've worked with, Heather Graham, worked with all directing things that they either wrote or developed. Tony Goldwyn, I'm working with on a lot of different things. Wow. So, a lot of good actor directors. Tay Taylor was an actor when I first met him, and uh, now writer director, obviously, from The Help On. A lot of actors are really great at directing, you know, because they understand character development and filmmaking. You know, some actors are not interested in it. You know, they're just not because it's a whole different mindset, a whole different skill. But it's fun to work with actor directors because they have that such a love for the audition process. First of all, sometimes it's intimidated until they get into it. You know, because they're like they're actors themselves. But it's fun to get to have that really warm relationship between that the actors and directors, because there is a kind of understanding that's different than people that just go into directing. Some of those individuals you mentioned, the Ted Hope, to me, he's got a brain that I can't even comprehend. He's such a smart man. Do you remember, I guess, the shooting gallery? They were doing a lot. And your office was pretty near them, right? Yeah. Close by shooting gallery, yeah. It's an exciting time. It was exciting times, and it was all these um, really interesting projects that we got to work on with with all of those different producers and some really crazy, wacky directors. So Robin and Scott at Harmony Corinne, who we worked with on a couple of films. 
Abel Ferrara, who worked oh, my gosh. <laughs> He's a character. And Christine had Mary Heron. So it was, it was fun. You, you know, it's funny that you say that because um, I've seen some directors just from, you know, the casting studio in New York. And, you know, maybe it comes along with the territory when you're when certain, I mean, directors, when you can direct a film, it almost is like a miracle to pull it off. And a lot of them are such minds that, you know, like for instance, I got to see Baz Luhrmann, up in, and you know he's just this, such a creative mind. You, you know these people yeah. are like I don't want to say genius, but they're just on a different level than day to day humans. Well, I mean, somebody like Baz and I have not worked with him, but yeah. I, you know his films, of course, and um, he's got such a big picture of you know this explosive thing that he does, even on stage. And so it's like working with almost like working with a painter, you know, that right. has this huge view of what he's doing you know and sometimes people are very like you know into the smaller pictures of things so but the but every film that we cast is like putting together a painting or a jigsaw puzzle or something if the colors and the depth and everything work it works if there's something that's off it doesn't there's a scene in uh, this old movie called the cincinnati kid the stephen queen movie and Margaret plays this character. I think she's Carl Malden's, like, you know, trophy wife or something. She's uh, filing down a jigsaw puzzle piece to try to fit it into the puzzle because she doesn't have the patience to actually put it together. And it's one of those funny things because it's like, yeah, that's kind of what casting is like. If you try to smash this puzzle piece in, but it doesn't yeah. actually make the puzzle, you know, work as well. But it's a really funny scene. And she's just so incredibly beautiful in that film. <laughs> So you're looking back then, you, know, you were really in... in I didn't cast it. I was a <laughs> In the incubator stages of independent film back in the 90s yeah. and forward. Uh, so now we've, we've gone to a new era, I think. And, you know, of course, the pandemic threw a little curveball, but it's still a big curveball. And, you know, you're seeing... What's interesting, Carrie, is, you know, like for me, even, I, I used to love going to the, the movies. Yeah. You know, there's something about that community experience. But it seems like, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, but... Ever since the pandemic, even though, yeah, the movie theaters are now open again. But it seems like the world became this, like, okay, I'm going to get a big screen for my house. And I'm going to make my living room as much as I can into like a mini movie theater yeah. kind of like. And as a result, the streaming product, I think, really has over the years improved. Where there's so much, there's so much content that's been on the, the television screen that's as exciting as what used to be in a movie theater. Almost. I mean, I feel like it's a different experience altogether. And I know what you're saying, because most of the people that I know that are interested in doing, you know, viewing things at home have gotten great equipment and a great sound system. And But there is something about going to the theater and to the film, you yes. know, movie theater, that is you isolate yourself for that extent amount of time. And you aren't distracted unless you like to get up and go get Cokes or use the bathroom or, you know, whatever. And so your focus is different than even if you have a great setup at home, you're still distracted, you know, because you're at home. It's a, I like the isolated experience of going to the theater more myself. I like that it's back. And even though you're not engaging with other human beings, you're around other human beings in a theater situation as opposed to, your dog at home. And even, Carrie, when you're like, let's just say when you're fortunate enough to go to a matinee and you're, you're not too many people in the mm -hmm. theater, lights come down. Yeah. I always say it's yeah. the closest feeling and security of being in yeah. your mother's womb. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> 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 I'm 
Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something that's just something so satisfying before even anything yeah. starts playing. But I went to my brother and I went to double features on Saturday when we were kids. And I think because my parents wanted time off from us, <laughs> so they just popped us down in the movies. And so I, it became an obsession with me yeah. from a, a very early age. And it's also that kind of like, I'm in my own world now, you know, and engaging in someone else's world. So it was great. And I loved it. But, you know, the whole thing has not only, you know, the viewing aspect of what we do and the streaming and the quantity of material that we have at our access at this point is so different. But the audition process has changed so much as well. How would you say? Well, because we don't do one-on-one auditions anymore. We do, you know, taped auditions and then, you know, watch five times the amount of uh, auditions that we would have had in person. And then we're not in the room with that person. So we don't give immediate feedback for them. We have to, you know, hope that their agents and managers translate our notes to them for a second taping. We're doing Zoom auditions, which is a little more immediate than the self-tapes, and Zoom director sessions, and even Zoom chemistry reads. And it's working because we've been busy, and the product is coming out, and it's quality product, but it's different than the immediacy of being in the room and the warmth of another human being and the engaging in the conversation of, you know, um, what it is to break down a character. So it's a lot different. Can I ask you, which would you say, knowing now that you can see that many more actors in the given circumstance you are watching on your computer versus in the room, which is less actors, but being in the room, which do you prefer? I prefer live auditions, but I also, to that, I have to say, I think what we'll probably keep doing is taped auditions first and then selecting that. If we go back to live auditions where we actually have our sessions based on you know, the greater amount of tapes that we can actually see as opposed to, you know, the smaller amount of people that you can schedule in a, in a work, work hour day. So I think we'll continue with the self-tapes and, you know, it'll change. I mean, I think agents will say, well, you know, the, my actor only wants to go for the live session because you used to, it used to be my actor will only come for the director sessions. So I think we'll be faced with that, but I do think that Eventually, we're going to get back to live sessions. We're doing it in a theater. And then we're doing live sessions in the theater. We had them down here this week, as Brian knows, because I was coming down for these chemistry reads that we were doing for a film we were doing. And so I thought, okay, I'm in L.A., so here I am um, <laughs> with you guys. So we've started doing at least chemistry read director sessions. And we're doing a new film with Mary Heron, and she wanted to do live sessions. And so Paul's done several days with Mary and in your office, actually, <laughs> in New York. So we have started doing some live sessions again, but n- not anywhere close to, uh, obviously not anywhere close to do what we used to, because mostly it's just been chemistry reads. So the way you're, you're saying is you feel like eventually it'll be like first round all, on, but, but the, you, you see the at least part of the in-room audition coming back as far as like second or third stages? I think so, but it's convenient for everyone. You know, I mean, like, so for an example, we're seeing 300 tapes instead of 60 in-person auditions. From the 300 tapes, we're probably, you know, forwarding, you know, 60 auditions to the creative team, the directors, producers, whatever. And then the director will bring it down to what we would have normally had in the old days as director sessions. 
you know, like 12 people maybe at the, at the most. And then chemistry reads, if we do chemistry reads, which is down to three or four people opposite each other. So it's not that much different, but the initial process is different. And I think it's better for actors to be able to present yourself to all of the casting directors in Los Angeles and New York and Chicago and everywhere in the world, you know, is you've had that opportunity in the taping situation that you just wouldn't have had in the live process situation. And it may get you to the Zoom session or the live process, but that was not an opportunity that actors had before. I think that's great. You couldn't have said it better because, as you know, this uh, deadline thing came out in the last week or so. Yeah, and nobody read the article by saying, oh, Mary's charging actors to audition. She's not. Let's say, aside from that, you've got actors saying, this is horrible, we're self-taping. But then, listen, the self-taping, it it happened because for a number of reasons, it started probably happening obviously before the pandemic. But the pandemic, as you said, it wasn't a small curveball. It was a large one. And so as a society, you know, or a business, we've gone that route. But what we talked about, Christine, and before, you know, you can actually get angry about it. Say, well, self-tapes. Or what you just said, which is, hey, in a lot of ways, here's what's nice about self-tapes. So it's all how you look at life. It's all how you look at this. Well, the thing about self-tapes is, too, is like, yes, you're self-directing. Yes, you're working sometimes in a vacuum because you don't have the script and you don't have the breakdown. You don't have the context. You don't have the tone, perhaps. So that's part of an actor's homework is to get as much information as they can. If they can get the script, great, read it. If they can get at least the breakdown to figure out who the other characters in the scene is with them, then, you know, that will be beneficial, you know, to find out what these relationships are in the scene that you're in. But with self-tapes, you can... Work on it until you're satisfied with it and you don't have that opportunity in the casting room. You get a couple of shots and then that's it. So the reaction to this whole thing, Carrie, which is in the second part you were talking about the, okay, there's, so there's a person on the side offering a service that nobody's holding a gun, uh, an actor's head to, hey, you can go and get yourself tape done there for, if you don't have this set up at home. But here's the other side that you might not even... A guy like you might not even be aware. I just want you to know this. You've got casting people who have, uh, because of this thing, they, they had they had members of their office scheduled to teach a class, for instance, this week. They hear this kind of uh, whatever comment section of the deadline, you know, from all different, as you can see, we've got some positive comments. Hey, this self-tape's a good thing. Hey, this is another opportunity for us to have a choice of going to a place. Okay. But then they're saying to their members of their offices, you need to cancel your class at Next Level One-on-One, even though it's in two days from now. Tell them it's canceled. We will not be associated with any place that is going to be interpreted as a place that takes money from actors. That's one way of looking at it, but it's almost okay, like... So then USC should close their... There you go. So like a plumber or a doctor, there are some good doctors. There's some money, just like anything in life. Yeah, as you said, nobody's putting a gun to someone's head. You know, you're making a choice to advance your career in the way that you feel is going to be beneficial to you. And they singled out Mary is interesting to me because she's got 30 plus years experience. Why wouldn't you want to learn from somebody with experience? She wasn't charging for auditions for her projects. She was offering a service to people to tape them for their own. I put people on tape for not my projects. I've never, you know, charged because that was not the thing back in the day when, you know, people weren't calling and saying, I'll pay you to put me on tape for a project that's not, you know, but uh, I'm happy to work with actors, you know, and if it's not my project, great, you know, and if some of them have booked work from it. So, you know, when, when Shakespeare says that, quote, you know, thou dost protest too much, 
what, what we decided to do was, hey, you know what? We don't want to give our opinions on this. It's such a heated thing. But what we're going to do, we're going to say, all right, listen, every day, we're going to try this out. Every day for like uh, three hours a day, we're going to offer our studios to come in. You can use our rooms and our, our professional equipment. We're not going to charge. Just to show both sides, hey, look. There's many ways of interpreting. Uh, but well, I feel like, you know, I mean, Gersh has their own taping room. It's so their clients are able to go into their taping room and tape. Their tapes look better. You can tape on this and I can set this up on a little tripod and, you know, great. it's fine, you know, and it works. You know, right. what makes you feel more connected to the material? That's what yeah, an actor should do. That's right. And so if, you know, if taping in a professional situation makes you feel more, you're presenting something better, it's a good idea. You know, if you feel more comfortable taping on your own in your home and it's a good quality tape, also a good idea. But America's always going to be full of opportunities where you can go and make a better tape somewhere and you don't have to, but, you know, or, or a service that helps you improve on your skills of anything. I, you know, I mean, I majored in theater, did a long program in a university. And then when it came to Los Angeles, I took acting classes from, you know, different coaches and you know great acting teachers i studied with jeff corey for several years you know who was a, a phenomenal teacher and some other teachers as well and nobody forced me to take classes did i get work from them i don't know but i improved my understanding of what acting is and what you know scene work was and what you know character work was from these people that knew what they were doing so i always laugh at people think like you know like that if you go to a professional self-tape, it gives an advantage or I'm just like, are we in fourth grade? It's like, you could have a fancy haircut. You could like wear nice clothes. It's like, it, it, when does it end? You well, you know, know what's interesting here? I actually, a long time ago, when one-on-one started, I was looking for like a new, something new to get my, I actually started going to film festivals. This is back in the nineties. And the one thing I noticed, I had, I had a guy who lived next to me. He, uh, anyways, his friend drove a taxi. Long story short, they made a comedy, and I went and saw it at a, one of those, you know, in most of the comedies back, I mean, most of the film festivals back then, mm -hmm. we're talking about when they first started, yeah. were like, we're okay, Tex, and then someone usually pulled out a gun and said, hey, F you, and the other person said F you, and it, it got boring. It was like, almost like, okay, here we go again. But then these two, they, they made a comedy, very low budget, mm -hmm. you know, you, you could dissect production value and, and say, well, that was really cheap, but... Everybody laughed because it was funny, and it, it was called. Um, anyways, it was it was my, my neighbor was a guy named Donnie Ward, and so he, his taxi cab driver friend. You know, anyways, they were very resourceful. They made, they made this film, and because I saw at this low budget the, the film festival that all these other uh, gun movies, and they were like the only comedy. Uh -huh. Everybody was laughing. I said, you know what? That's interesting that as long as you can make people laugh, they don't care about the production. You know, just like the work. Someone could have the most, you know, like not such great, let's just say lighting, but if their work is good, somebody like you is going to be like, good work. So I decided from that end to start this thing called the New York Comedy Film Festival mm -hmm. because I saw, hey, you know what? If a filmmaker does not have much money and they can pull off a film that makes people laugh, it doesn't matter. And if an actor can pull off a good performance, Okay, you know, yeah, is it better that they have a perfect great, but if they don't, they're still going to get noticed. Well, the thing about tapes and the thing about even, you know, my audition rooms in New York and L.A., 
you know, we've set it up so that it looks great, but it's still a vacuum. It's not a set. You don't have, you know, a tree to climb if you're auditioning for Cocaine Berry. I mean, you have to infuse any audition with an immediacy and uh, a reality that is life that you're living at that moment because it is a vacuum. And I think that's... um, you know, a lot of actors have, you know, worked in films that are all green screen. They have to create an entire world that's not there. You know, like a lot of times when you're on a set, that's actually production design and everything. But if you're on green screen, you're still doing what you do in the audition room, which is creating a world that you have to imagine is your reality at the moment. And so... I feel like, you know, if you're going to a professional place and it makes you feel better and, you know, the sound is good and, you know, the lighting is good and and um, the camera is in the right position, good for you. If it's not something you feel like doing or have the money to do, you to spend on, you've got your cell phone, you know, and you can do it until it looks good to you and you send it off. Nobody does special programs like one-on-one next level. It's where we really help actors shine. I'm Emilio. I signed with my Southeast agent right after the Atlanta trip, and now I'm auditioning several times every month. And you know, I almost didn't do the Atlanta trip because I thought it was just another cash grab. I can tell you from experience that it's not. That's not how one-on-one next level rolls. And here we are six months later, and I already booked my first job with my Atlanta agent. I'm Rebecca, and the Bridge program demystified the industry for me. It gave me the platform to get off book in under 10 minutes, I met 60 new artists that are now all a part of my community, and I even signed with a manager. I have never walked away from a program so confident in my abilities. I'm so grateful for one-on-one Next Level. My name is Capenna, and I can finally call myself a working actor after participating in the LA Super Showcase. I had just moved to LA and I felt stuck. I came across the LA Super Showcase, and let me tell you, it was a life-changing experience. I signed with an agent and since then, I've been auditioning for series regulars and booked my first TV job. I finally feel like I made it to the next level, thanks to One-on-One Next Level. In the next 12 months, One-on-One Next Level will host 27 special programs bringing you unmatched, exclusive access to industry connections. Special programs aren't just a one-and-done class. Instead, they're designed to accomplish in a weekend what it takes most actors months, even years to do. So whether you want to get repped in a smaller market like Atlanta, bypass casting directors and connect directly with TV showrunners and decision makers, or spend a weekend meeting a bunch of musical theater industry professionals in New York City, you have to become a member to be eligible to sign up for our special programs. To apply, go to www.1on1nextlevel.com. We can't wait to hear your success story. And your common ingredient seems to be that, you know, you didn't just accept any work. The work that you chose to get involved in, you're probably dissecting a, a script must have spoken to you and said, hey, you know what? We want to work on this because you've done some impressive. Thank you. It's a combination of a lot of things, Mark, because it's a business that is, you know, filled with people. And so I am fortunate enough at this stage in my career to work with a lot of producers and directors that I've worked with over the years. And so that's one of those, the script is probably going to be good if they're the people I've worked with that have been interesting to, interesting to me over the last few decades. But the script is not the first thing. If I get something from Mary, it's the first thing I read, but I know I'm going to work on it with Mary or Tom or Tate. You know, When it's a new person approaching me and Paul, it's based solely on, are we interested in this script and telling the story? 
let's meet with the director and the producers. Are we interested in working with these people? So that's how it started, even right in the beginning, because those people that you're talking about now, like now you get it, you work with them for two decades. Yeah, but there was a starting point. You were picky about what you chose. Yes. And again, as I said, I was lucky because I started with Billy and Suzanne and we were working with all these great, incredible new, you know, New York directors and producers. It was kind of, I guess someone would call it the golden age of independent filmmaking because yes. it was, it was the beginning of Sundance really. And the beginning of that kind of festival, because festivals before that were international sales markets like Cannes and Toronto and Berlin and are still international sales markets, but also interested in, you know, unusual quality filmmaking, new directors, and they all have their own new director sections in, in their film festivals. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, I did get very lucky, you know, and Billy and Suzanne and I were in the Tribeca Film Center and we were the second tenants after um, Bob De Niro and Jane Rosenthal and the third tenants were Miramax. And so we started working with Miramax from, the first iteration of their producing films, you know, their first film we worked with them on was uh, The Night We Never Met. It was a Warren Light film with uh, Matthew Broderick and really nice cast. And then Paul and I worked on the last Miramax film, which was The Upside with Brian Cranston. And that's the one, it opened Toronto the week Harvey got taken down. So, I mean, so I had an expansive, you know, very, Beautiful scripts and wonderful films that was part of the Miramax um, library that I worked on over the years. And so that was also a very kind of like fell into my lap, lucky thing that happened. And, I've, you know, like I said, I've kept up relationships with all of, not all of the directors, with a lot of the directors I've worked with over the years and from start to current. Would you say like film is your primary passion? It seems like you've... Well, it was initially. I enjoyed working on film. And then things started shifting a bit. We did, Susan Seidelman was um, a director that Billy and Reese had worked with on um, Desperately Seeking Susan, was uh, their first film when they were still at Lincoln Center. And Susan was the director. And so one of the first TV projects I worked on was um, Sex and the City because Susan was directing the pilot. And so Billy and Suzanne and I did that series for the first couple of years. And then Jennifer McNamara, our associate, took over after the second season. So that was kind of my first television experience, even though it was HBO. Mm -hmm. And did a couple of pilots uh, for the networks. I didn't enjoy that job because it was um, was very corporate. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really dive into television Mm -hmm. stuff. Mark Forster called me. I'd worked with Mark on Monsters Ball and a couple of other projects. And um, he called me one day a few years ago and said, would you do a pilot? And it's like that he was directing and I said, sure. And he's like, for Amazon. It's like, Amazon? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. So we did a series called Hand of God with Mark mm-hmm. and then have done um, several other Amazon shows. Mm-hmm. And then we did, um, television-wise, we did uh, Filthy Rich that Ted Taylor created and directed for Fox. And Liz Paulson was the head of casting there, and Liz and I became very friendly. And then she moved over to Nickelodeon, and then Nickelodeon became Paramount Plus. So we've done four or five shows with them because of my relationship with Liz, you know. And Tom did 13 Reasons Why, so we did 13 Reasons Why. So we've done a lot of television just because people have moved into streaming 
Mm-hmm. And then you know, we're back into the network world with um, Alaska Daily because Tom created and directed Alaska Daily. And um, do you enjoy it as much? As films it's or? different. You know, it's it's. I mean, the audition process is similar. You know, but it's different. You've given so many people like thirteen reasons why yeah. an opportunity to. You know, there was one one on one actor that that's in there. But the main thing is you walk around and you hear people talking about this show. Isn't that incredible? Well, it's amazing because uh, Brian York is brilliant, you know, and he wrote this series and addresses things that are uncomfortable. Teenage suicide is a very uncomfortable yes. topic. And yet that, that change that teenagers are going through where their bodies are changing and their world is still, you know, in this kind of, you know, the Lord of the Flies thing, you know, it's uncomfortable and people don't want to talk about teenage suicide. And and yet that show addresses it in a way that, you know, is like we are aware that this is a issue that kids are going through. And I guess as adults, we want to protect children, obviously, but we all grew up and we all had these issues that we had to deal with when we were kids. But as parents, you can watch that show and you can, you can learn to be a better parent by getting a little bit more involved. Yeah, and like, yeah, because you know, it's it, you're right. Like, it, you're so vulnerable at that age, and you know, you go down the wrong path. It's so easy. I, I look at my life and go back to when I was like, let's say, 13, 12. And you know, you get involved with like the wrong next door neighbor, or you can go down a bad path, or where someone can make fun of you, and you can take it to heart. And not in a way now when you're an adult. Uh, you know, it's a whole different thing. So that show, what I got out of it was like, wow, parents, here's an opportunity to really like. To, to again, back to, you know, your example of uh, looking at, oh, this is actually a good thing. Yeah. As opposed to, this is terrible that they're talking yeah. about teen suicide. Yeah. This yeah. is something that is pulling the mask off of it, you know, and that's, I think, an important thing about storytelling, which is what we originally started talking about as well. Is that one of the things, things that has to be one of the things that laid you up as a casting director getting involved in, in a project like that? When, you know, you're walking around hearing people talk and seeing that it's actually changing the world a little bit, there must be a satisfying. It's fun. Yeah, it's very satisfying. It's satisfying to know that there has been an impact with something like Spotlight. Again, Tom McCarthy, you know, it didn't bring down the Catholic Church. It, it opened people's eyes to what had been going on for centuries. And so it was a very important and a revelatory project to be a part of. And I, I'm very proud of it. I'm also very proud of having, you know, been part of the team that created Sex in the City and changed the way women operated in the world and were seen in the world. And I'm, you know, I'm happy that I was part of, you know, Pitch Perfect, which makes people smile. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. It brought back the musical. It's incredible. So it's been great to be part of all the, these different kinds of ways to tell stories. And I love it. I love it. I still do. I kind of just want to second what Mark said about, you know, you being, because I remember when I first started working here years ago, I was like, what about Carrie Barton? Like, you know, like we should you know, schedule him. And Mark was like, the thing to know about Carrie is he's like ultimate gentleman. And like, <laughs> I can attest that to your, you know, your classes that all of our members just like love and just kind of the care that you bring in, like working with them and, you know, your projects, you can just, really tell it's like you're passionate about this and so i just wanted to say that <laughs> well you know i mean one of the things that paul and i talked about because paul worked with me and billy and suzanne when we decided to form a company was we want to create a safe space and a creative space for actors it doesn't make them feel 
any more frantic than they already are going to feel coming in for an audition. And so to try to kind of like make it as relaxing and zen as possible, which is not really possible. It's an impossible task, but to make that creative space for an actor to come and do their best work is, is something that we consciously, you know, talked about and, and created in both our New York and LA offices, you know, because we both love actors and so does everybody else in my office. And what made you want to move back to LA after your years in New York? No, I mean, no, not, I mean, not, not as, it wasn't just money, but it was, you know, it was with Billy and Suzanne. It was the old days where they would fly us out and put us up at, you know, a hotel and rent us a car and give us per diem. That ended, you know, Pineapple Express was the first time I came out as a local hire and stayed at a friend's house, even though it was a big studio movie. And then when Paul and I started our company, it's like, okay, well, we can just have a New York office or we can open an LA office and, and have more opportunities to work on projects. And so we did that and we were planning on splitting time, you know, each of us doing New York and LA and Paul's family life. He had a kid right after we started our business together. He already had a, a daughter and, and then he had his second daughter. So it's like, Paul's not coming to LA. <laughs> and Billy and Suzanne didn't really love coming to LA either. So I was kind of the LA person already, oh. although they would come out on, you know, on a lot of it, different occasions for different films. But LA has a great group of, you know, people in this industry, actors, agents, managers, producers, directors. So it's, you know, it's, it was something that I was willing to do because I love what we do and I wanted to have as many opportunities as possible. Yeah, and it worked out. Yeah, it did. Yeah. You guys did it. <laughs> yes. Well, last question, and I asked this with all of our, you know, uh, guests on the podcast. So it's our 30th anniversary podcast. So we have Mark has a motto, like, where there's a will, there's a way, because yeah. it wasn't always easy for one-on-one -on -one next level. I had to take a lot of risks, jump through yeah. a lot of hoops, still do sometimes <laughs> as evidence uh, the last few days. So just wanted to ask you, like, was there, can you give like one example of a time when you kind of took a chance, took a big risk that was seemingly against all the odds? In your life. Yeah. Everyone, uh, everyone was telling you that's a dumb thing to do. Don't do that. Just um, being, deciding to go into the world of entertainment was a big risk yes. for me, you know, and I think for most actors, especially, you know, whose parents want them to have a secure life, this is an insecure life and you can hope that your talent will out, but not necessarily happens to everyone. You know, I mean, some people get lucky. Some people are as talented as anybody out there. That's the biggest money-making movie star in the world. And don't get there. So you, you have to believe in yourself and you have to like what you do, I think. And taking a risk for me was going away to college and majoring in theater instead of education or, you know, whatever else. Or, you know, like my dad did, he took over his father's business with his brother. I could have gone into the plumbing business. And my cousins did. They took over my uncle's, you know, my dad's business, partner's business. And they make more money than I do. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, when you mentioned more than once today about the word lucky and you got lucky, would you say that, and you also said just now, believing in yourself, do you think believing in yourself leads to luck? That's a great question. I think believing in the opportunity to live the life that you want to live is luck. And if somebody has told you that when you were a kid, my grandmother was like, be yourself and do what you want to do. So she was the person that supported me most to become the lucky person that I was because I she infused that belief in myself and me. I don't think everybody gets that. 
And so I was fortunate enough to have someone in my life that did support that because my parents didn't know anything about the entertainment business, right. you know, and they were like completely concerned and also like, how do you think this is going to work? Right. <laughs> and it did. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the backstage pass. You've got to get the backstage pass. There's behind the scenes footage. We've taken the biggest takeaways from the episode and written them down for you. There's also tools and resources to help move your career forward. It's the easiest way to turn this podcast into a tool for your career, as opposed to something you just listen to as you're doing the dishes. 